misunderstood and were kind of trying to, to take license of what he said, or they were things that within the church they were teaching that Paul needed to correct. Uh, and so we looked at this last week in, in chapter 6, verse 12, where there's all things are lawful for me as, as one of these slogans. Well, here in this text, you're going to see at last half of verse 1, the same thing is going to happen. And so Paul's dealing with specific issues. He's going to correct some specific uh, ideas that, that they're promoting within the church. And, and he's going to clarify them and he's going to help us to understand them. Now, before we read it, I want to give this um, warning is not the right word, uh, thing. I'm going to give you this thing. Uh, it can sound like when we read through it uh, that Paul's actually pretty negative about marriage. And he thinks that everyone should just be single and that marriage is for people who are not strong enough to be single. And, and that's not the point at all. When you read through the rest of the New Testament, Paul talks about marriage many, many, many times. And he talks about it in a way where it's very positive. In fact, the argument is that marriage is meant to represent Christ's covenant relationship with his church. So between a husband and a wife, that relationship is meant to exalt uh, God's love towards his people to the world. And he talks about that lots. So from a holistic point of view, is Paul is not as negative as he sounds here. The reason that he's going to sound negative is because of some specific issues that are happening in that church that we're going to address. Uh, and, and hopefully, it'll become uh, more clear to us. Now, we've been dealing with some sexual problems already. And one of the interesting things that you'll see is that Earlier in the text, we looked at some, some pretty bizarre situations, and, and to the point where Paul said, I can't even believe that this kind of behavior is present within the church. This, is, this isn't even found amongst pagans. This is, I can't believe you're doing this. And now we're going to go kind of 180 degrees back to the other side. And it just reminded me that different ideas found within one local church are not a new thing, right? As we face this lots, is you know, the, the old adage, right, where there's five people, there's six different opinions, is that's so often the case, is we all have slightly different ideas about things, and within the church here, there's just, there's a divide somewhere uh, along the lines between what's permissible and what's allowed because we have the freedom in Christ to do whatever we want. Well, we talked about that a few weeks ago and clarified that, but now we're going to go all the way to the other extreme, which is more like an, an aesthetic practice of any pleasure that you can have, you should deny yourself. And Paul's going to argue against that as well and saying neither of those extremes. One is just, just morally wrong. The other is just not helpful. And we need to find a happy balance where we're honoring God, but also not just denying the things that God has created for us to enjoy. So with that, uh, let's read here. The first seven verses uh, you'll see are about the issue that is at hand in the church, and then he's going to give some uh, wisdom in regards to marriage and regards to divorce, and, and we're going to look at those because that is a very hot-button topic in today's world. So let's, let's read chapter 7, uh, 1 to 16, but just before we do that, let's just bow real quick. God, thank you uh, for these words that we're about to read. God, they are your words written to us. Would you remind us of that? And as we seek clarity, and as we try to understand what these mean, God, would we not project our own desires of what we want the text to mean? Would we not put our own 
situation and the own conditions that we find ourselves in into interpreting this text. But would we simply read it the way that you have written it so that we might know what is true and what is right and how we ought to respond. Amen. So here's what it says, starting in verse 1 of chapter 7. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, here comes the quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the, husband, or the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as, were as I myself am. But each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, again, those last, that last half uh, is, is a very controversial text. Uh, not because... Not because it's actually all that difficult, but because we project ideas into the text that aren't there. And so we're going to start here at verse 1, and we're going to work our way through this. Like I mentioned, earlier in the chapter, Paul deals with some, I can't even believe some of these sexual immoralities uh, are taking place. He's just shocked by it. And now you have, we'll call it a sect within the church that is advocating something else. And so when Paul says, now concerning the matters which you wrote, uh, again, this is in reference to a letter that we don't have anymore. But the Corinthians wrote to Paul saying some things, and, and one of these things they're saying, it is good for men not to have sexual relations with a woman, right? So now they've gone from one extreme to the other. There's two different groups in the church, and, and again, the idea being this ascetic principle of if you find any pleasure or enjoyment from it, you shouldn't do it. The only thing that you should find is, is you know, a sense of obligation and duty to Christ, and anything else is just a complete distraction from it. And Paul actually deals with this in several of his letters, correcting this idea and saying, that actually, God has created good things for us to enjoy because he's a good father who loves us and wants us to enjoy the things that he has created for us. Marriage is one of those things that God has created. You go all the way back to Genesis to see this, is God has created a certain order, a certain plan, certain desires for people. And so Paul's saying, 
this idea that you have that, that sex should just not be a thing actually is, is a pretty poor understanding of what God has created. So then he says this way, but because of the temptation of sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. It kind of sounds like he's saying, because you can't control yourself, you might as well get married. Kind of what it sounds like he's saying. And, and that's not uh, at all the point. Leon Morris writes it this way. He says, he's not saying that this is the only reason for marriage. Rather, he is dealing with a specific question in the light of an actual situation. So we need to remember these things. Is when we read some of these texts, there's a specific set of circumstances happening. There's a specific issue being addressed. Paul's not making some kind of a dogmatic theology about marriage because if he were, then the rest of his letters don't make any sense. So whenever we find something like this where we go, this kind of sounds a little bit opposite to what he's been teaching in other letters, then we have to step back from it, find the overall message of what Paul's saying in all of the passages, and if you find one like this one that seems to go in a different direction, then we have to ask some questions. Why is this one different? Now, something that I think we need to address before we even get to verse 7, where he says, right, I wish that all were as I myself am, which is, which is a call to his own singleness, um, is recognizing that if God has created marriage, then marriage is not wrong. Just as being single is not wrong. And I think sometimes we get those uh, mixed up in our minds and we think that, well, one is better than the other. Well, Paul's going to deal with this type of logic in, ver- in, in, in all kinds of ways, but specifically in spiritual gifts later on where they're all fighting over that they want one specific gift. And he says, no. That's silly. God's created all of you unique and, and with specific purpose and intention. And in the same way he's going to argue through these first few verses, some are called to marry and some are not called to marry. He's not talking about it in the sense of saying, you know, if you burn with lust, then you might as well get married. That's not his point. Rather, what his point is this, is if, if for you... Um, the desire for relationship, the desire uh, for the sexual intimacy and all those things, if that's just not a part of you, then don't feel any obligation to get married. Because maybe God has called you to something different, to something that is single. Now we'll get back there in a minute, but verse 3 is really interesting. right? He says, the husband should uh, should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise to the wife Sorry, likewise, the wife to her husband. And then he makes this radical statement that was radical in this time. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. But before, right, we panic and and think Paul's saying something he's not. He flips it and says the exact same thing. Husband, you don't have authority over your own body. The wife does. As he's reminding us that you have then, if you've been married, you have entered into a covenant agreement that you love each other and that you will serve You know, one of the things that Shayla and I in our premarital counseling sessions that we've done lots of is a, reminding, or a reminder to people that if you are expecting your spouse to fulfill you, then they're going to fail you because they can't possibly fulfill you. Only God can. Yes, there's happiness. Yes, there's enjoyment. Yes, there's all kinds of good things that come out of that. But if we're looking to them to say they need to complete me, well, when they fail to complete you, then 
well, I might as well move on to something else. We need to be reminded that when we get married, we don't get married to get. We get married to give, to serve, to love, to care for, to cherish. All of those things are about the other person, not about ourselves. And while, yes, we do have unique needs, and and that is certainly something to consider in our lives, is what I have found is my needs tend to get met when I serve my spouse. It's just a byproduct of that. There's There's a great book, and if you go onto our website under the Teaching and Resources page, you'll find this. It's Love and Respect by Dr. Egricks. It's a fantastic book, and what he talks about is that when you as a spouse, when you give your partner what they need, it may take a little while, but after a little while, they start to reciprocate and actually give you your needs back. And it just, this beautiful cycle kind of starts where while you're serving the other person, you end up being fulfilled in the same thing. And that's the reality of how God has created marriage. But here, there's this idea of, of almost this manipulation, and, and Paul's addressing this and going, look, you know, wife or husband, whoever is the one, if you are manipulating the other person into saying, I'm not going to give you uh, the marital rights because my, uh, I'm going to do what I want when I want it. Paul's saying, your marriage is already very dysfunctional and you need to fix this. You need to recognize this is you are not your own. You have entered into this covenant to say, we have become one, right? It says in Genesis, and we looked at this last week in the previous text at the end of chapter 6, is two have become one. Yes, you are still two unique individuals, but you have entered into this covenant together where you will operate as if you are one person. So Paul's saying, you need to serve your spouse. You need to serve your spouse. You, you do, do not seek your own desires, but seek your partner's joy and happiness and fulfillment. And, but then he says this in verse 5, and this is interesting. Right? He says, so, so don't deprive one another. Right? And, and again, I, I think this goes far beyond just an idea of sexuality. This goes beyond how many of us like to be manipulated into anything. Right? Like we don't. Don't manipulate your partner into doing something that you want them to do. That never ends well. So don't deprive one another. And then he says, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time so that you devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again. And then in verse 6, he actually says that that was a concession, not a command. Right? So Paul, as a single person, is saying, in a marriage, this is what it's supposed to look like. A sexual component of your marriage is a very healthy and good thing that God has created, so don't deprive one another. But perhaps, and he, this is kind of what he's saying, perhaps there may come a time where, where whether it's um, a situation in your life where you have no control over it and you're just desperate and you don't know what to do, then he says, perhaps it might be good for you to take a sort of a fast and both come together in prayer and to ask God that God would direct and lead you in a certain way. But Paul understands that that's not, that, that would be the, the exception to the rule. He says, but make sure you come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So let me just clarify something here. Is sexual temptation doesn't come to those who are only single or people who are not yet married. Sexual temptation is something that virtually every one of us struggle with. The culture that we find ourselves in is so overly sexualized. It's just such a normal part of our lives that that we just start to think that 
you know, if you're single, you start to think, man, if I could just, if I could just get married, then, then this issue wouldn't be there anymore. That's just not the case. The case is, are we willing to enter into uh, a covenant with God and say, God, my bo-, like Paul said earlier, my body is yours. I want to use it for your glory and for your honor. But just because you say, I do, in front of your family and friends doesn't mean that all of a sudden those things change. We still have to deal with our own hearts and the realities that are at work within us. Is sexual temptation needs to be dealt with. And this is why in the previous text, Paul says, flee from sexual immorality because it can really ruin your marriage. It can really break down all kinds of your relationships. And so you need to get control over this. Now then he does say, I wish all of you uh, were as myself I am. So now it might sound right like Paul's saying, you should all be single. Like in a perfect world, that's what it would be. But remember, in a perfect world, which there was one for a very short time, God created man and then found out it is not good that man is alone. Right? There was a sense of community needed. Now, I, I don't know, I don't want to make the argument that that's saying that marriage is the ideal and singleness is like some secondary thing. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. In fact, he says, but each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To be married is good. To be single is good. And I think so often we try and like compare and try and say, well, one is better than the other when there's two equal options that exist uh, before us. And for Paul, you know, in a very practical sense, he recognized that because he was unmarried, he could literally go and do anything at any moment, not not selfishly, but he could just get up and leave and go proclaim the gospel somewhere. And he could plant a church somewhere and not worried whether he was going to be killed in that moment because he didn't have a family that he was responsible to take care of. And so from some practical standpoints, yes, you can see that this makes good sense. But like I said, the rest of what Paul argues about marriage in many of the other books are that actually your marriage can be one of the loudest speaking things about God's love to you and to the church. And so people can see God's love in you. So he's not saying one is better than the other. Let me just give you a real quick tangent here as well. A couple of months ago, our young adults went through a a certain study and and we came across one session that was about singleness. And and I realized, and I probably knew this, but it just, you know, sometimes as a married person, you maybe can forget uh, a little bit easier, is sometimes we in the church don't do a very good job of saying that singleness is a good thing. Sometimes we uh, can be very patronizing towards people and, and, you know, they're not married yet, and we go, don't worry, it'll happen one day, right? With the sense of, like, that's the goal. But that shouldn't be the goal. A relationship with Christ and an a ever-growing relationship with Christ, that should be the goal. So marriage, it can be great. It can be wonderful. But that doesn't mean that God has called everyone to be married. And so I think sometimes we're a little bit patronizing, but we also don't want to belittle it because some people maybe do desperately want to get married that are not yet married. So I just think we need to be more cautious about how we say things and not belittle it and not patronize it and find some healthy balance in the middle. All right, verse 8. So Paul now then gets on to three different sections within, um, or three different groupings, I guess, of people and what his advice is for them. So he says, to the unmarried and the widows, I say this, it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So again, in the context of what Paul's saying is this, 
if you are currently unmarried, right, whether you're single or whether your spouse has died, don't just immediately rush back into a marriage because that's what you know and that's what's normal. Consider what is God calling of you? Paul's saying, God has called me to be single, and so I encourage you to consider that option. He's not saying you literally should. He's saying there's some benefit to that. But like he has just said, some have one gift and some have another. If they cannot exercise self-control, so again, this doesn't mean that they're wildly sexual people that just, oh, I I, I couldn't possibly remain single. That's not the point. The point is, has God called you to be single? Do you find yourself where sexual sin is not something that you deal with as much as maybe a lot of other people? Do you find uh, companionship and partnership maybe something that's not a high priority in your life and, and you're okay to be single? That's what Paul's saying. Then, then great, then be single. Don't just give in to some kind of a social norm because you think you should, but go to God and ask him. Then he gives uh, two other groups some advice, and, and this is quite interesting here, and I want to clarify this. Verse 10, to the married I give this charge, and then in brackets, what does it say? Not, not I, but the Lord. But then in the next group of people in verse 12, he says, to the rest I say, now I, not the Lord. So the question is, should we, should we really listen to verses 10 and 11, but verses 12 is just like a suggestion that we don't have to follow? Like, How do we kind of interpret that? Well, here's what Matthew Vincent writes. He's a a scholar on original language. He says this, Not I, but the Lord refers to Christ's declarations respecting divorce in Matthew Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. This is not a distinction between an inspired and an uninspired saying. Paul means that his readers had need not apply to himself for instruction in the matter of divorce since they already had the words of Christ. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, I'm just repeating something that Jesus already has taught. So when we read Scripture, because we have to understand it this way, right, is is the Holy Spirit has inspired Paul to write these. So these are not Paul's words, they're the Holy Spirit's words. So it's not like some of them are more inspired than others. The clarification he's simply making here is that Jesus has already spoke to this. And so I don't even have to appeal to you on my own authority as an apostle or on one who uh, the Holy Spirit has inspired to write these things. Jesus has already said this. But then in the second part, then he says, now, this has not been already spoken by Jesus, but now this is something that I'm going to say. So that's just a clarification there for you. So he says, to the married to give this charge, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife, right? So this seems kind of really simple, is Paul's just saying, look, this is what God's intent with marriage is, is that if you both love Christ, that you would serve one another, and you would stop giving into your own desires, and that you would actually elevate the desires of your partner, and that you would love each other and care for each other and, and sacrificially serve one another. Why? So that the world sees it. And they recognize that there's a covenant relationship that Christ has with this church, and your marriage is a representation of that. In some ways, I think what Paul's saying, and it's something that we should consider, right, is if they both love Jesus, how can they not make it work? Now, I'm not saying that there aren't issues. I'm not saying that there isn't years of hurt or pain or uh, neglect or trust that's broken or any of those things. Marriage is difficult. Any relationship is difficult. 
right? So often we treat those that we love the most the harshest. As we explode at somebody that, that we love desperately, like our children or our spouse or a brother or a sister, because, you know, like, there's a, there's a reason expressions fight like sisters or fight like brothers happens. Is you love each other desperately, but yet sometimes you blow up. How can we not work it out if we both say that we love Jesus? We are responsible to do that. And so Paul says, even if, if you do separate, then remain unmarried because that person, that person is still considered, you, you both made a covenant before God that you are married. And so he says, or else be reconciled. If you do separate, the goal is for reconciliation. Now, now as a pastor, right, sometimes marital counseling comes where there's some very broken situations. And sometimes there are moments where you say you do need to be separate for a time because we have to work on some of these things. But the goal is not, just like with church discipline a couple of chapters ago, the goal is reconciliation. The goal is that 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 relationship would be restored for the glory of God so that people see that and go, "How how did you work through that? How did, you, how did you fix such a broken situation? And we can go, praise the Lord, it wasn't because of me, but it was because I was faithful to what God called me to do, and he gave me the strength, and he gave me the wisdom. Now, in verse 12, we kind of have a different um, situation. In, in the last half of this chapter, so in the next week or two, we're going to deal with some of these things a little bit more specifically. But remember, we're dealing with the very early state of the church. So when Paul says, to the rest I say this, if a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And likewise, is that was a far more common thing then in the sense that while the gospel of Jesus is being spread is not everyone responded to it. And you would have a husband or a wife who did respond to the message of Jesus and say, yes, this this is the Messiah. I do want to serve him. And another spouse would say no. Now, of course, that still can happen today. Certainly, a non-Christian couple, one of them may, may respond to the invitation of Jesus and one may not. But most of what we see statistically is where someone who is a Christian who claims to be a follower of Christ chooses to marry someone who is not a Christian. And we're going to talk about that at length in the next two weeks, so I don't want to spend uh, any time there, except to say that what we're going to see is that that's not what God's desire is. That God's desire is that if we are a Christian, that we would then enter into a partnership with someone else who is a Christian, so that our greatest love for both of us will be united and the same. But here, they had, all of a sudden now, my husband has become a Christian, or my wife has become a Christian, and, and what should I do about this? Well, in the Corinthian church, according to scholars, as many believe that, well, they would just end it right then, because we now have very different philosophical approaches on how to live life. And so we just need to cut it and be done. And Paul says, well, actually, maybe God has a better plan here, right? Maybe God is going to use you in the life of your spouse so that they see Jesus, so he says, if, if the unbelieving spouse is consents to live with you, if they still love you and want to remain with you, then don't divorce them because you actually have a great opportunity to show them Christ literally day after day after day after day. So don't, don't leave them. And then, and then there's this peculiar verse, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is holy because of the husband, otherwise your children would be unclean. It's like, well, what does that really mean? 
Well, obviously, Paul's not trying to say that if one is a believer and one is not a believer, but you have children, somehow they're, they're okay. They're good, right? Like, that's not the Scripture. The Scripture says that each one of us has to make a declaration of faith in Jesus if we want to be saved. That's just the reality of it. So I think it's pretty simple. Is all he's trying to say is this, is when you enter into a covenant relationship with Jesus, there are spiritual blessings that he gives to you. Hope, future, patience, um, all these spiritual gifts that, uh, or fruits of the Spirit, excuse me, that we read about in Galatians, all of these things God enables to us through the Holy Spirit. And I think all he's simply saying is that your spouse will be a direct benefit or your child will be in direct benefit of those things that God is blessing you with because they live with you. So they'll see a little bit of those things. They won't be able to experience it in the same way because they don't have the Holy Spirit, at least yet. And the hope is that, that you will be able to you know, win them for the Lord. Not that, not that you have saved them, right? but that you've been able to be a vessel in that process. However, Paul does note something here for us. And I think... This is important for us to realize. As he says in 14, uh, sorry, in 13, if, let me just read the whole thing. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So the implication here is that where does the power lie? The power lies with the unbelieving person. If the unbelieving partner now has a spouse who claims that Christ is the most important thing and they want nothing to do with that, there's really not all that much you can do to save that. It's a very uh, difficult situation. Uh, Frank Thielman writes it this way. He says, Paul advises the Christian spouse not to create strife by trying to manipulate reconciliation with an unbelieving spouse who has left the marriage. Again, manipulation never works even when we think it's with good motives. You cannot manipulate somebody into forgiveness and salvation. It doesn't work that way. So if they're willing to stay with you, if you were married to an unbelieving spouse, and, and perhaps that's you right now, maybe you were married to an unbelieving spouse, is recognize that God is actually at work in you for the, your spouse and for your children. So honor God. Try and, try and win that spouse with the love of Jesus, not with manipulation, but with just an unconditional love for them. But on the flip side of it, Paul recognizes that this doesn't mean that it always works. And so if that person leaves, and it says this, if the unbelieving partner, this is verse 15, if they separate, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. To this, Alan Johnson writes this. He says, if the unbeliever takes the initiative and abandons the believer, then the marriage is nullified. The believer is no longer bound. That, that Greek word literally means to be a slave. What this implies is that the deserted and divorced believer is not only free from the obligation of marriage, um, but also free to remarry under the conditions set forth in the rest of this chapter. Now that, that can be a dicey sentence in today's world. Um, but I think I think the, the text speaks to this very clearly. Morris writes it this way. He says, it would be a curious expression to use if Paul meant is bound to remain unmarried. Like the logic of that just doesn't flow. It's completely opposite. So now again, let me clarify this. Is what I'm not saying here is that if you're married to an unbelieving husband that, or a wife that you can manipulate them into leaving you so that you're freed of that commitment. That's the exact thing that Paul's arguing against. But he's saying you can only do so much. 
You can love them unconditionally. And yet if they walk away and they terminate that marriage, that it's, it's uh, one of my pastor friends that I talked to this week said it this way. It's like a death certificate of the marriage is it's done. It's voided because they have broken that contract and they have walked away. Now remember in Matthew 5, Jesus also does teach that if somebody um, is caught in sexual immorality, that, that the spouse has the right to nullify that marriage because of that broken covenant. So there are reasons why a divorce might happen and there are reasons why a remarriage might happen, but this is not God's intent. This is not God's desire. God's desire is that our marriages would show who Jesus is to our culture to the world that we find ourselves in. And so if we use some of these texts to try and say, oh, look, divorce is permitted, we're already reading our own subjective ideas into the text. That's not the point. The point is not to try and say, when can I get divorced? When is it okay for me to leave? Always restoration should be the goal. Now, sometimes that is not the case. Sometimes it can't be done. So then Paul and Jesus in Matthew 5 and 19 does talk about some of those unique situations, but that's not to be the norm. And so my goal and my challenge to you is is that you read a text like this. If you're married to an unbelieving spouse who still loves you and wants to remain with you, despite the fact that you hold to a different set of of what's most important to you in, in following after Jesus, then great, you have such an opportunity to win them to Christ. I recognize that you don't get to share the one thing that's most important with you with the one person that's most important to you. I get that. And that, that saddens me deeply. But at the same time, is, is our happiness and our desires, is that what's more important? Or have we entered into a covenant where we said, God, I'm going to love that person more than I love myself? That's what we need to do. He says, God has called you to peace, right? So if that person leaves, don't manipulate them into trying to come back. Certainly pray for them, right? And, and maybe you're the one who's sitting there going, I, I'm convinced that God wants to restore and, and renew this marriage again. Then great, then pray for that and pray to that end. But don't try and manipulate. Let God be God. Let God be at work in the hearts of everyone and let him convict. Let him draw them back. And what a testimony that would be if they did come back, they come to faith, and that marriage can be restored, and the whole church community could celebrate together with that. Paul reminds us in the last verse of this, how do you know whether you're going to save your spouse? And again, it's not that you save them. God's the one who saves them. But through your influence, you can show them who Christ is every day. So may we do that in our relationships. And a reminder, if you are single, and if you're kind of sitting here going, man, this doesn't really apply to me. I wish, you know, Paul had just said more about being single. I think the reason he didn't is because it's less complicated. (laughs) Right? And I don't mean that rudely in any sense. But when you submit your life to that of another, is now all of a sudden two have become one. And so I say this in marital counseling sometimes too, and Shayla and I are talking, is, you know, before I got married, I just did what I wanted. Right? I didn't have to go to someone else and consider, oh, that you're, you're now affected in this. Right? It's not like I'm going, can I have permission to go and do this? I think if we speak in those kinds of ways, we degrade marriage. Right? If we go, I'm going to go ask my wife for permission to go and do this, like, or I'm going to go ask my husband for permission, we're degrading that. I think 
rather it's I care about this person deeply and my choices affect that person. So I want to include them in all these things. So it is more complicated. If you are single and you're sitting here going, man, I don't really have a desire to be married. I don't really have a desire to enter into relationship. Then great, then God has called you to something equally wonderful but very different. And that's good. If you are someone who is not yet married, but considering that, perhaps you're in a dating relationship, perhaps you're engaged, whatever it might be, is recognize that these commands here, these things in Scripture, this is what the ideal is, that our marriage would exalt Christ, that the world would see it, that you would not marry someone so that you can be fulfilled, but that you would marry someone because you love that person and want to serve and care for them. Marriage is... um, Granted, it's not quite been 12 years for Shayla and I, but has been the best journey that I've ever had. And it's a wonderful thing. But that's because God has called us to it. And so whatever God has called you to, be faithful to that. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these words in Corinthians. God, so often culture really starts to influence the way in which we interpret scripture. And God, I pray that we would not allow that to happen, that we wouldn't read our own uh, experiences or our own subjective ideas into what the Bible says, but that we would look to it to see what it's trying to tell us. God, for those who are married this morning, we just pray that that marriage would be able to be healthy and strong that both would decide that they're going to give up their own desires in the pursuit of serving the one that they love. And that that would be some small example to the world of Christ's love to us. God, for those who are married uh, to an unbelieving spouse this morning, God, I pray that they would see that they have opportunity to show that person Jesus over and over and over. And we pray for strength and for courage and for patience for them. God, for those who have potentially had a spouse abandon them because of their beliefs in Jesus, we pray that they would not hold those things so tightly that they just wear on them, but that they would recognize that they can only be faithful to what you have called them to do. Help them to pray for whether that's a former spouse or a current spouse that that they are separated from. Help them to pray for that person that they would come to faith in Jesus. And then God, for those who are single or for those who are widowed, we pray that they would consider what is God calling them to do? That marriage is good, but singleness is good too. Not one is better than the other. And I just pray that they would ask themselves, what have you called them to do that they might be faithful? God, at the end of the day, however we live, we pray that it brings honor and glory to you, that we don't seek our own interests, but we seek the interests of others. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for all that you have spoken to us through and and your words. As we go from here, we just pray that we would go and live these things out. God, may we cherish those in our families and those that we love. May we want to serve them. 
And may those acts of service and love, may they be in response to the fact that we have a God who has created us, who has loves us desperately and has gifted us in many different unique ways. And so we thank you for all these things. God, go with us this week. May we be a blessing to those that we encounter. Amen. Thank you for joining us again this morning. Uh, reminder to just register if you would like to come in person, and we would love to see you face-to-face. And a uh, reminder as well, Nick will be here on the 28th, so if you want to come and, and say hi to Nick uh, and, uh, and hear from him, make sure you let us know in advance. Have a wonderful week. We'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.